All right, 1 Peter is where we are. 1 Peter, and we're going to only look at the opening two verses there. And the title is The Trinity's Work in Salvation. And uh, we'll get that mainly in verse 2 as we, we take a look at this. But this letter was written to... Many congregations in what we know as uh, modern-day Turkey now. And it is most likely that this was a mixed uh, congregation of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Some really advocate and make the, uh, the case that this was only written to, uh, to Jews. But I think as you make your way through this passage, um, it becomes very clear that he was writing to Gentiles as well. And the point of the letter is to encourage those who are facing persecution, that they would stand fast, they would recognize that trials have a purpose in their life, and that they should uh, be ready to endure the suffering that they're going to go through. Um, The word suffer or suffering in the New King James is used 17 times in this short epistle. That's a lot. So, I mean, without a doubt... That is the focus. But you know what else I found interesting is that the word glory is used 11 times. And they do go together, don't they? There's a suffering and a glory that we will walk through. And we will take some time to to note that as we, we move through. So he writes that they might have hope in the midst of suffering, reminding them of the glory that is to come. Another word that is uh, used quite a bit is the word uh, submit. And it's used seven times of the various relationships where we submit. We submit to governmental leaders. We submit, of course, to the Lord. Uh, wives submit to their, their husbands. Um, you submit to the leadership of the church. We all submit to one another. So this is another significant thing. Written probably um, uh, at the time of or just after the beginning of the persecution that Rome Uh, poured out upon the church under Nero. Nero was a crazy guy. And so uh, that persecution began in 64. So um, both 1st and 2nd Peter written not long after that period of time. And um, we'll talk more about it later, but he's probably writing from Rome, um, although he uses what would appear to be a code name Babylon. Now Babylon could have been a literal city that he's referring to, but it doesn't seem likely, and we'll talk more about that. And it is Peter that's writing. You know, Peter is that fisherman, right, that, um, that the Lord had called. He's that guy that we can relate to so well because he seems to be running ahead and doing things and having to get corrected or lagging behind and having to be, you know, pushed along. And we can often, we relate to Peter because of the, the way the Bible just shows us his mistakes and and, and such, but this uh, fisherman who denied the Lord on the night he was crucified was restored by the Lord in ministry and faithfully followed and served the Lord for the rest of his life. Jerome, a church historian, tells us that he was crucified around 65 A.D. That he was crucified um, for his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when they were about to do this, that he requested and stated that he was not worthy to die in the manner of his Lord, and asked to be crucified upside down. And so that is not scripture, but that is some reliable historical uh, information that we get about him. So we begin looking there at verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So I got a little map there that kind of gives you a a sense of whether these are regions rather than particular um, cities. And it begins at the top. You'll see Bithynia and Pontus. Although 
as you read this, it says to the pilgrims in Pontius, and then it says at the end, Bithynia, and that's because this was a Roman um, mail route. So it seems like he picked up the mail route in Pontius and kind of did the circle coming back around to Bithynia. So um, you can look at the back of your, your Bible. You probably got a map. You might be able to see it easier than there. But um, this is the believers, and they are ones that are, um, they're dispersed, right? They are, they're uh, persecuted. They are spread around. Um, and so this is certainly a term that was commonly used among the Jews who were part of the diaspora. But I don't think it has to be locked in to only mean those uh, Jewish believers. As we look at this in verse 1, what he says, and really it's where we'll develop our first point, is that he's, he's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And this is the way in which we are to live. We are to live like pilgrims. And this has the idea of um, staying in a strange or a foreign place residing temporarily. And that is who you are in Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a pilgrim. Okay? You are a sojourner. You are one that is just passing through. And there is a mindset that a, a pilgrim has that's very different than a resident. So if you were, you know, traveling, and I'm sure many of you have traveled even recently, and as you traveled, you traveled in a, in a mindset that says, I'm not going to be here forever. So as you packed your bag, uh, as you loaded up the minivan, you put certain things in there, but you didn't put everything in there. You only, you only put the things that you thought were going to be necessary, which was probably more than you needed. That's typically what we do. But, you know, if you think about, you know, camping, I think camping or backpacking is a great example that kind of captures the spirit of this, this pilgrim mentality. When you go backpacking, you are like, it's, it's, you know, you spend extra money and extra thought goes into getting the lightest gear you possibly can. Uh, when I was a, a youth pastor and we did um, some backpacking trips, um, I always would have the kids um, arrive an, an hour early and go through their backpack because I knew they weren't going to listen. And so um, you know, we'd be out there and so they would. We do that. Have them under, there'd be cans, heavy cans of soup, and you know, mom wanted them to bring, you know, you know, four or five bottles of water, and it's just like, it's like, who's going to carry this backpack? It's not going to be you, ninety-eight pound little sweetheart. You know, who's going to who's going to carry this? And um, so we start taking the things out and put the stuff back in. It was it was always fun because the things you would tell the teenagers to bring, they usually didn't want to bring, and the things that you told them not to bring, that was what they wanted. And so, um, they, you know, this is the way, and the mentality changes. So, you know, I said, bring your fishing pole. There's going to be an ability to, to, you know, these are Southern California kids, by the way. So, um, and I'm a Southern California kid as well. But, you know, they, they're not used to being outdoors. And um, they, they're used to being at the beach. Um, and so it's like, bring a fishing pole. You can go fishing while we're up there. Oh, gross. There's no way I'm going to, you know, eat a fish. I'm like, all right, that's fine. But I brought my fishing pole, and so they had all these really nice, you know, uh, you know, dehydrated meals that they were so excited about until they tasted them. And, um, and there I am fishing. I'm reeling in my trout. I've got my little, you know, spice jar. Got some garlic and black pepper and some salt on it, and got my squeezed parquet butter and wrapping it up in tin foil and putting it on the grill. And they're eating that food. 
And um, so, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, the things that didn't seem important while living at home decided to become really important while being out on the trail. And then, of course, they were like, well, you know, can I do this? Yeah, if you got your fishing license, you can do this, which none of them did, of course. And so, um, you know, these are the things, though. It's a a different mentality. So I'm trying to say it's a different mentality. And he's writing to to these pilgrims, to those that have this different mentality. And so let me just ask you, according to that definition, you know, um, pertaining to staying for a while in a strange or foreign place, is that how you view this place? I don't mean this building. I mean where we are right now. Is this, I mean, are we thinking and saying, I am just passing through. I'm only going to be here for a little bit. I'm not going to be here forever. I don't have to bring my couch. I don't have to bring my lazy boy. I don't have to bring, you know, all of these things because I'm only going to be here in this little, this town for a moment. Well, what about for us that are passing through? Do we live like this is the final destination? Do you, do you, and it's more than just living like, um, uh, not living like it's the final destination, but it's living like you are just passing through. Because the time and the emphasis I'm going to place upon here and now, the way, I, how much I allow it to affect me emotionally, it's, it's really different. And the things that you can do without and the things that you can endure become very different. Because what you say when you travel, and if you've ever been you know, like on a mission trip into some difficult places, the mentality that you'll say is like, well, I'm only here for a little while. I'm only here for a while. This is, I'm just passing through. And, and you develop a different mentality. And this is one. But I think we often allow our roots to go down too deeply. We allow the things of this kingdom and the, 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 you know, just the way our mind focuses, the things that we hope for, the things that we live for, it becomes too much. There's a story told that I've shared before of missionaries, and they had traveled ahead, and before leaving, they had packed up their good American, you know, station wagon full of everything, all the, the wonderful things they wanted uh, to, you know, they're long-term missionaries, and so they filled this up, they put it on the ship, and then, um, you know, it took some time, but the day finally came when um, the, the ship was coming, and they could get their their station wagon, and all of the stuff that was in there, and they were, um, as they tell the story, they're talking about how they just longed for, they talked about all the stuff that was going to be in there, and how nice it would be when they have all this stuff, so they, they drive into the port city, they pick up their, their car, and before they're heading back out into the rural area, they wanted to get a, you know, a breakfast, they, they went in, got the breakfast, and when they came out, guess what? Station wagon and all the stuff was gone, everything. And um, what they say is in that moment, the Lord just said, you, you are holding on to these things a little too tightly. And he says, the Lord loosened our grip and we learned to have a different mentality. And, and I think that's a good word for all of us, not just missionaries that have their stuff stolen. We all need to loosen the grip on this present world. And, and you, you know how you can tell? If you're, you're gripping too tightly, is what is your level of disappointment when it doesn't turn out the way you want? And what is, the, um, what is the expectation and hope you have in things that are all going to pass away? Is, it, is, it, is, this like, is it necessary for these things to take place in order for you to have that le- level of contentment or satisfaction? And if we are there, then it's just it's too much. So we need to be living like those that are just passing through. 
In verse 2, he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. In this section, we're going to see each member of the Godhead at work. We're going to see the Father. We're going to see the Son. We're going to see the Spirit working to uh, secure our salvation. And so this is the Trinity that's at work. And I think just a guiding definition for us to have for the Trinity, here's one that I think is, is helpful. It says that in one divine essence or one substance or nature, there are three persons distinguished from each other by certain characteristics that are given to us in the Bible and indivisibly participating in that one nature. So it's three in one. It's like, well, I, I can't understand it. And this is what I would say. You might not be able to rationalize all this completely together, but the elements of the Trinity by themselves are not difficult to understand. Can you understand three? I think you can. Can you understand one? Yes, you can. Can you understand how you can have three in one? Okay, breakdown. You know, we, we don't fully get that. But these are the elements of the teaching of the Trinity. And we um, look at that and some will say, you know, how can you worship a God you, you don't understand? I don't know. I live a life I don't understand. So I think it's probably possible for us to do that. And that a God that I worship is bigger than me is actually more comforting to me than it is troubling. That his nature might have elements and distinction and depth to it that's not readily understandable to me. That's not, that's not problematic at all. I'd rather have it that than to have some, some, something so simple that I don't even have to think about it. And again, I, we refer to ourselves. But do you understand yourself? Do you understand why you feel the way you did the other day? Do you understand the reason why you feel today? Do you understand how all of these things go, um, you know, work together in your, uh, in your physical body, in your spiritual life, and in, in your emotions? I mean, we're complicated people. And we struggle with that. That God, not being complicated as, uh, in a negative way, but that God is, is, you know, beyond our thinking, is completely okay. Well, what has this Trinity done? Well, the first member of the Godhead, the Trinity, um, the Father, he has elected us. He has elected us. And that is, carries the idea of being chosen, right? Um, he has invited us to be a part of what he has done. That sovereign act, the election is that sovereign act where God calls us to be a part of the salvation he's providing. And that is what the Father was doing. He was calling you. You know, there's a lot of people who live life feeling very sad and left out and alone and like nobody sees and nobody cares. And yet what we find here is there is a God in heaven, our Father, who is actually choosing us and electing us to be a part. Probably all of us have not been elected for something or not been chosen for something at some point in our life. Some of us probably a lot. What we find is I don't get brought into those things. I always seem to be on the outside. And, and that can create some pain and frustration, maybe even anger. But here's the thing that I want you to see is that God has elected you. God has elected you. The most significant 
being in the universe has set his mind upon you. And we read in other places, before you were even created, before the world was even made, he knew of you and he chose you to be a part of his eternal kingdom and his plan. Now what we read here is that we've been chosen according to the knowledge of God the Father. So when we get into this, this is you know, a point where we begin to find you know, some, some pretty significant debate within the church. Um, is this um, election, is this something that is uh, based upon um, what God knew man was going to do, or is this something that is just based upon God's simple um, yet profound uh, preference and he chose them according to the knowledge, that knowledge. And so there's a debate that we have. I think in many ways this comes down to this. Do we believe that when, when God gives a call for all people to come to him, do we believe that this is a call for all people, or do we believe this is a call only for the elect? When we talk about the Lord, you know, um, sending his son, right, um, and dying uh, uh, for the world, John 3, 16, is it the entire population of the world that Jesus died for, or is it only for the elect? Is it only for a few? And so there's a debate that surrounds this uh, idea of uh, does God elect based upon the knowledge of what man does in response to his call, or does it refer uh, to God choosing only a few to have salvation? And um, to me, um, I firmly land on the idea that is based upon a knowledge of what we're going to do. So he elects us according to the foreknowledge. How will I respond to the gospel? Um, it's hard for me to conceive of there being a universal call, um, which I believe the Bible is completely uh, teaches us, and yet only have a few that could actually respond to that. That man would not have a place, would not have a free will um, to uh, exercise in order to say, I'm going to believe. So, the, I mean, it really does become one of those heady issues that we, we begin to talk about. So the Bible is clear. Let's break it down a little bit. The Bible is clear that we are chosen by God. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask in the, uh, Father, the Father in my name, he may give you. So we are chosen. Um, and then John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. So God chose us. God draws us. And this is, an, this is something that is amazing. It's something that happened before the foundation of the world. And where we usually end up in the church, which I think is so sad when we start talking about God's sovereignty and man's free will, God choosing and choosing us, whether it is just simply according to his own simple pleasure or whether it's according to a knowledge that there would be those that would respond. Um, we end up fighting and arguing over this and we can get quite animated in this. But I really believe that Psalm 144 verse 3 captures the attitude we should have. And this is what it says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you're mindful of him? What ought to happen is we ought to just stand back and say, wait a second, that God elected me, that God chose me, that he thought of me before the foundation of the world, that God would have two thoughts about me is 
more than I can, I can uh, you know, take in. And it should begin to result in worship rather than in some wrangling over the words. Now, I, I do believe it, it is significant. Now, this is if you're, for those of you familiar with the Calvinistic view of TULIP, you, the L in that acronym is limited atonement. And so that means there's only atonement for some. And so the Calvinists would, would land on the side of saying that this knowledge was not according to uh, something God knew man was going to do. Um, and that is why he elected him. It is simply um, it, the, uh, speaking of his preference and his desire. And so that you have you know, these two different camps. But I think what we find in Scripture is that the Bible teaches the sovereign election of God and it also teaches us that man has a free will that he must act upon. And, and so I already made reference to one. But John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is why I believe that when I read whoever, I think of there is a, there is a universal call that has gone out to the world to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And, um, and yet if it is... One that it's like, no, it is only according to God's knowledge and not knowledge of man's response, then is, it, is that really an option? <laughs> I mean, where, where's the opportunity to make a choice? It's already been predetermined without any consideration for what I would do. How about John 5.40? But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Or we go look at other ones, and we're going to study it as we go through Peter. Um, is that God is not willing that any should perish. Well, if, I mean, how can you use this, this concept of God not being pleased with somebody dying if, of course, he is only arranged for some? So how do you reconcile these two truths together? Now, I know the Calvinists, and if you lean that way, say, yeah, but you're, you're diminishing the sovereignty of God. And some would even begin to say, and that is blasphemous. And some would even take that further and say, you know, I'm not even in the camp of salvation. That's very extreme. Um, and it's also extremely wrong. But that is, that is where this, this thought can go. The in, in, but this is what I would say. No, I don't diminish the sovereignty of God at all. And so how is it that man could exercise his free will and God still have this divine um, sovereign right to elect? Because God in his sovereignty has allowed man to make a choice. So my question and rebuttal to the one that says you can't see man making a choice because that would diminish the sovereignty of God. You, I would respond and say, you have too little of a view of the sovereignty of God. God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to allow these things to happen, of which is the ability for man to respond to the call of God upon his life. Are all going to respond? No. Who, who are those that are going to be elected? Those who he has foreknowledge of. What's that foreknowledge? Well, that's a debate. But for me, that foreknowledge is God knows who is going to respond. Um, in other words, he wasn't going to choose a loser. He was going to choose those that he knew were going to respond to his love and his grace. And this is that knowledge. Um, is it easy? No, this is, this is one that is going to take some time for you to, to work through. But this is where I would say you should land. You should always land with God being sovereign and choosing, and always should land with man having to make a choice. Man, it's, it's both of those. Now, this is, this is what you're going to have to work out. Are you going to fully work this out? I don't think that you are. Because if it was able to be fully reconciled, 
I don't think we'd have the debate. But any system of theology that leaves out the sovereignty of God and emphasizes man's free will over uh, the sovereignty of God, that is a, that's, a, that's a theology that has a problem. Any theology that emphasizes the sovereignty of God to diminish the man's free will to make a choice is also a problem. So we, we do have to live with some tension um, in this matter, I believe. And these are the two uh, truths that Scripture teach. But again, I think the proper response for us is rather than getting so lost in our own heads and minds and trying to figure this out, is what is man that you take knowledge of him? And that we just stop and we begin to, to contemplate this. The creator of the universe has called you. Now you're like, well, I'm not a believer. Well, then we would encourage you today to make a choice to follow him. That you would allow the spirit of God who will be drawing you today and giving you that sense and that desire to turn things over. And there's going to be that war that takes place within you where there are other aspects of you that will want your free will or you think it can't possibly be true or you're going to have other philosophical ideas that begin to compete. But my urging to you is, is to respond to the word of God and the drawing of God in your heart and your life and not resist the Holy Spirit as we read, some did, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Can you imagine hearing those words as the last thing you hear before you exit the presence of God and go to an uh, eternity of judgment in the lake of fire? You were not willing to. And that is where the responsibility is going to lie, is in man's rebellion against the love of God, not in God um, you know, keeping people out. It's going to be in man's failure. So come to him. Come to the Lord. Submit to him. And you say, well, I've got questions. Yeah, well, we all have questions. But I would venture to say that, you know, you still have questions where you are right now. So if you choose not to come to the Lord, does that solve all your, I mean, like life is now suddenly uh, is free of questions and you understand all things? Now, you still, you have questions right now. But you have questions without salvation. My encouragement to you is why don't you come and get salvation and allow those questions to be answered as you follow the Lord. And, and really, it's the Lord who brings the answers. It's the Lord who brings the answers. And you may not have a, a question to every one of your why questions, but you can, have a question, you can have an answer to every one of your who questions. Who is the sovereign God? Who is the one that's overseeing my life? Who is the one that created it? And you can begin to look to who God is, and you can understand his nature and his love and his, and his wrath and his judgment. Um, you may not have an answer to every why question, but you're not going to get those anyway. You're not going to have every one of those questions answered. But uh, so much better to be in Christ. So the work of the Father is that he's electing. He's choosing. Well, Paul would pick up the word in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 of adopting. He's bringing you in. We keep on looking there in verse 2. And we see that it's not just the work of the Father, but it says in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling. So now we're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who's sanctifying us or setting us apart. This is the third person of the Holy Trinity who's applying the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to those whom God has elected. 
It is the third person in the Holy Trinity applying the redemptive work of Jesus, which he did on the, uh, on the cross, to those whom the Father has elected. When we put our faith in God, the Spirit then works in our lives to apply all that Jesus has done upon the cross and rising from the dead. He's the one that's applying. He's the one that's ministering to that. It's him that takes us from darkness into light. He removes us from the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. He is the one that is baptizing us into the body of Christ and making us a part of that family. He is the one who changes our desires for sin and gives us a love for righteousness. Now, Speaking to some of you that maybe have not come to the Lord. And maybe that's a problem. You're like, I just don't know. I mean, I just, I'm in love with living my life the way I want to in rebellion. And I know that if I I come to the Lord, I'm not going to be able to do those things. And, And you're absolutely right. The Lord does call us to repentance. But let me ask you, do you realize that when you come to the Lord and you surrender, that he will sanctify you? He will set you apart. He will change you. And he will give you new desires for righteousness. You will want to be pleased pleasing to the Lord. You will want to walk in uprightness. This is one of the great um, ways we can find assurance of salvation is when you look at your life, it's, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm like, well, do you want to do the right thing? This is a question I have to, do you want to do the right thing? Does it bother you that you do the wrong thing? Absolutely. Well, where do you think those desires came from? That is a, a work of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit who's changing your priorities and changing your desires. And so as you come, the Spirit of God is taking the work of Christ. He's applying it to your life. And among the things that he does of cleansing you of your sin, he is also changing those things that are important to you. But we read here that this sanctification is for obedience. And I would say, first and foremost, obedience to the gospel. We must obey the gospel. What is the gospel? Is that we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died and then he rose from the dead. That we would turn from our sins. You must be obedient to that. And the, the spirit of God is the one that brings us into that obedience. Now he's not going to drag you in a headlock into it. But if you will surrender, then the Holy Spirit will then step in and apply that work in your heart and your life. But you know, sanctification for obedience is not something that happens just when we believe the gospel, uh, you know, that moment in time of our uh, our life. But it's, it's, I think, a, a continuing sanctification of obedience that he's looking for. He begins this work of setting us apart, but it's a continued work. And so my question is, How is that work going in your life, believer? Now, if you have not come to the Lord, you need to take that first step of obedience and you need to obey the gospel. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Um, But if you have done that, then let me ask you, how is that continuing work of sanctification being set apart? How does it look in your life? Are you allowing that shaping the forming of your character, your attitudes to be done by the Holy Spirit? How do you respond when the Spirit begins to move in your life? Well, what does that even look like? What does that even feel like? I'll tell you, what it feels like for me is when there's the the thought of going in this direction or going in that direction. Two options before. How am I going to use my time? How am I going to use my money? How am I going to use my mouth? How am I going to use my, my energy? And I have options before me of what I'm going to do. And then the Spirit of God is urging me 
to yield to the things of, of the Lord. And at that moment, this is the work of the Holy Spirit that's seeking to, to sanctify me. And I, and I pray that you can make that a big deal in your life and that it will be more to you than just your own thought of, well, I have two options in front of me. And this, these are the options as I, I conceive of them. It's greater than that. The desire to do the right thing, the idea to be obedient to the Lord in this, that is not just an option that's you know, popped up in your head. This is a, a work of the Holy Spirit that is seeking to sanctify you. And I believe we can make a bigger deal about that work of the Spirit of God in our life. Then we'll find it easier to yield to that. Because it's not simply an option of, well, I've got two things. I can either have vanilla or chocolate. No. This is the Holy Spirit seeking to continue that work. And of course, there are things that we, are, we read about in Scripture that will grieve Him. It's the relationships we have and how we treat one another can grieve the Holy Spirit. Sin can grieve the Holy Spirit in our life. And now that work that maybe at one point in time in your life seems so easy to identify and so easy to, um, uh, to, to feel Him moving and leading you, but yet through the grieving of the Spirit, now it, it, that has become... You got calluses all over your heart and all over your mind. And what used to feel like just a, an amazing you know, move of God, now it's just it's like this slight touch in your life. And that's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? When it becomes like that, that we've said no to the Spirit of God so long that it, we barely feel it anymore. And if that is the case, may the Lord work and may he move to do that. The other thing that we read is, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is sanctified by the Holy Spirit, elected by the Father, and cleansed by Jesus. Now this is probably the one uh, work that is probably the most familiar to us of, of the Godhead. You know, we, we, we know of election. We probably find it a little more difficult to, to conceptualize this sanctification of the Spirit. Um, but the one that is probably the easiest for us to wrap our mind around is that we are cleansed by Jesus. The sprinkling is a picture from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see many times where um, uh, different items of the temple would be sprinkled with the blood. And it was to set them apart. So a sacrificial animal. Um, in Exodus 24, verse 8, we find that people were being sprinkled. And so it's picking up this imagery of the Old Testament. And um, it was to, to cleanse. It was to set apart. And we have been forgiven. And this is the great need of mankind to have our sins forgiven. Sin stains us. Sin separates us from God. And if that sin is not dealt with, then we will pay the penalty for that sin for all of eternity in the lake of fire. This is what the Bible says in hell. But God loves man too much to allow that to be the case. So he sent his son to take on human body that he could spill his blood. And that, that, that picture, that, that metaphor of then being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, obviously, this is not a literal thing that we're talking about, but it's something that happens in the spiritual realm of cleansing us. This is what happens, and then that sin is taken away. That stain is taken away. You no longer have a debt to God for the sin that you've committed and how good it is to be free. Um, 
David, the psalmist, says, Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It is a happy thing to not have to give an answer to God for our sin because we would never be able to fulfill his divine standards of righteousness. But his son is completely righteous. Oh, if we could only be like his son. If we could only have what he has, then I could do that. Then I could meet that standard. Well, his son came and he took your sin. But that's only half of the equation, isn't it? Because the other half is not only did he take your sin, but he gave you his righteousness. And so when we come responding to the election of God and uh, putting our faith and trust in Jesus, that ministry of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is applied to us by the Holy Spirit and we are given the righteousness of the Lord and we are cleansed. How good it is to be clean. How good it is to be forgiven. You know, when you're hiding something, it can just, it can torment your mind. But isn't it good when it's all out on the table and now you don't have to worry about what's going to happen anymore because you, you, you faced it. Well, this is this is the case with the Lord, is that when you come to the Lord and you confess your sin to him, he cleanses you. And he already knows your sin anyway. So you're not telling something he doesn't already know. So, yeah, the Father electing us, the Spirit sanctifying us, and Jesus cleansing us. And, um, you know, what we read there at the end, um, our last point is grace to you, and peace be multiplied. So this is Peter's desire for these pilgrims. This was a very typical uh, introduction um, in the ancient world. And what you have here is uh, to speak of, to end your letter. You know, grace to you was a very uh, Greek way to end your letter. To say, you know, and peace to you was a very Jewish way uh, to end a letter. And so the writers of the New Testament often pull these two ideas of grace and peace together. And his desire is that they would experience the grace and peace of God in multiplication, in abundance, not barely. They had experienced the grace of God when they got saved, right? It is God's grace that sent his son to die on the cross. For us. They experienced salvation. They experienced the saving grace of God. They experienced peace with God. You know, outside of the Lord, there's enmity that exists between us and the Lord. But when we come to Christ and we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit, that enmity is gone and now we are called the friends of God. So we have experienced grace and peace in the moment of salvation. But Peter is thinking of something beyond that. He's thinking of something that he hopes and prays that these believers will experience. And, you know, grace speaks of God's favor. And peace speaks of that shalom or that rest of God upon our life. So we have peace with God, but are you walking in the peace of God? You may no longer be in, uh, at odds with the Lord because you've been sprinkled by the blood of, of, of Jesus. But is there a peace that you're walking in? And how we continue to need the grace of God to live this life. His favor, his aid, his benevolence. This is something that we are desperate for. But when we grow to the place where we think, I've got this, I don't need you, then we stop seeing the grace of God abounding and being multiplied in our life. The easiest way to see the grace of God abound in your life is to have a complete awareness of your own shortcomings and to be before the Lord asking him, 
these wonderful endowments of peace and grace, they're hard to be experienced by the, co- the complacent. I say hard. I, I, w- I almost say won't be, but God is able to do exceedingly abundantly, right? So uh, he can step in and intervene. But these endowments... They're not going to be experienced by the complacent. They're not going to be experienced by the stagnant. And they're not going to be experienced by the backslidden believer if we remain in those places. So if you're a follower of the Lord, like, I don't really know about the peace of God in my life. Why? What, what, what happened? What happened? Because Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. I, I give you joy. I give you grace. How is it that we have arrived at a place that we don't know the favor and the aid and the help and the kindness and benevolence of God in our life anymore? I mean, I, I challenge you. Name the thing. Don't do it out loud right now, but you to yourself. Name the last time you experienced the grace of God. Don't think about the moment of salvation. When is the last time you can identify the grace and the favor and the kindness of God as it hit your life? When is the last time you, have, you can identify just that rest and that peace, that shalom over your life? And if you're like, I don't know, then I am going to say it just clearly. You're not spending time with Jesus. You're spending time with the TV. You're spending time at church. You're spending time, whatever. But somewhere on the way, Jesus is not in the, that equation because you cannot spend time with Jesus who is full of grace and truth and not experience his grace. So whatever it is that has distracted you, pilgrim. Set it aside. Have your quiet time. Sit in the presence of the Lord. Pray. Meditate. This is something I think we don't do enough of. Maybe we even read our our Bible and we even run through our prayer list. But I'm going to ask, do you meditate on it? Do you allow these things to to get into your spirit? Are they just like things that run through your head? I asked a friend one time, I said, how long should a quiet time be? Until He says, until you've heard from the Lord. That's a pretty good answer. We meet with the Lord to hear from the Lord, not to accomplish some checklist. So go and meet with the Lord. As we close here, make a big deal of the work of the Trinity in your life. Elected, sanctified, cleansed. If you're an unbeliever, come to the Lord today. Allow that work of the Spirit of God to impact you if you feel him drawing then respond to it and come to him and if you're a believer and you're walking in you know in this life then allow the joy of worship and being chosen to overwhelm you continue to yield to the sanctifying work of this spirit and let's live as pilgrims we got this 2024 year ahead of us among all the uh resolutions you're going to make for how you're going to live, I want to challenge you to do this. And I've, I've been thinking about this is, I want to live like a pilgrim in 2024. Let's live like pilgrims. How would our lives look differently? And this would be a great conversation for us to have with our roommates, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with our, our kids, with our, our spouses. If we are to live more like a pilgrim in 2024, somebody that's just trapped, we're just backpacking through this place, what would it look like? I've gone over a little bit, so worship team, you can stay where you are, but let's go ahead and stand and respond to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this work that you've done in our life. The beautiful work of salvation, how well we know it. Most of us, Lord, we know these things. 
We know of the Trinity. We know of the, the work of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. This is knowledge that is, is right at our fingertips. But Lord, I don't know that it's in our hearts. I don't know if there's a, a worship and a gratitude that we should have. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would shed abroad on our hearts again your love for us. And Lord, we also just want to pray and ask that you would help us to live as pilgrims, as those that are just passing through, that we won't grip on so tightly to this world that you will have to pry our fingers off of those things. Lord, we just want to let go of them right now. We want your priorities. We want your purposes. We want your commandments to be the most important thing to us. So Lord, give us a heart to prioritize the coming kingdom, that city that we are on a journey to. May that be what occupies our heart and our mind. I want to just give you a moment of, of quiet to respond to the Lord, and then um, we'll be finished. So respond to the Lord, whether it's coming to him or letting go of the world and living it differently in 24, whatever it might be.